Um, let's say a word of prayer to begin. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You are our God who is in the heavens. Help us to put our trust in you, our help and our shield. We will bless your name from this time forth and forevermore. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. What questions do you have? Any questions? Do you know where we are? Are you tracking with the story so far? We're clipping along. We've got, what was the last thing that happened last week? What happened? Previously on, we don't have a good name for our TV show here. Previously, what happened? Is it because the sons are lousy? I, I, maybe. I didn't, I didn't pick that up, but oh, yeah, okay. But they, they want a king instead. And he says, he says to them, he says to them, look, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God as your king, right? Bad news. And, you know, uh, one of the things you'll see in the reading that comes today is um, that he doesn't let up this refrain. So they get, they get super excited about Saul. As, and, and they have all, every reason to just at face value, but all along the way, pay attention to this, this, this sort of startling juxtaposition between Saul's kingly humility and his success and Samuel's pronouncements about what the, the disaster that's coming for them. So it's like, it, uh, it's this dissonance. You've got Saul doing all these great things, and then you've got Samuel saying, but remember what I said about the king, what he's going to do to you, right? What kinds of things is the king going to do? Do you remember? Make them, make them. Yeah, he's going to take rather than give. Yeah. Um, so watch out for that. Okay. Any, any other, any questions? So, so here's what it, it turns to First Samuel chapter nine, and um, we meet Saul for the first time here. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to set the context a little bit because there's a really fascinating um, bit of history that's in the background here. Or several fascinating parts of history. First, cha- First Samuel chapter nine. Here's how it begins, and then we're going to pause. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. So we, we're starting with this um, opening about Benjamin. Now, when tribes are named like this, or when particular things are named like this, it's not usually just incidental. Usually there's a reason for it. So let's do a little exercise here. Tell me what you know about Benjamin. What do you know about Benjamin? Rachel, right? Yes. Benjamin. So we have, um, he's the son of Jacob and Rachel. He's the youngest brother of Yep, youngest. He's the youngest of the 12. The youngest of the 12, which means he's the spoiled one. He's the spoiled one. Although you thought, you thought that Joseph was the spoiled one, right? Um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And he's the, so he's the younger brother of Joseph. Rachel died in childbirth. Yes, good. Um, died in childbirth. Um, so, what else? Well, tell me more about the story. Where does Benjamin factor in? That the brothers protect when they end up down in Egypt. Yeah, so let's, re- let's rehearse that just a little bit, right? So, they've put, sent Joseph away into slavery, and now... So Jacob, Jacob had his wife, Rachel, whom he loved most. 
Then she had two sons, and now one of those sons is gone. Rachel dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So now all that he's got left of this relationship is Benjamin. Okay? So there's the famine in the land. Joseph has arisen to power in Pharaoh and he's in, in Egypt, and he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. Um, kept all kinds of harvest during the seven fat years, so that during the seven lean years there'd be grain. Jacob sends his sons, not all of them, not Benjamin, sends his sons to Egypt. And Joseph recognizes them, remember? He recognizes them. Um, what happens then? What happens next? They arrive in Egypt, and Joseph greets them, and what does he? Do you remember what he says? You're spies. You've come. We read this story just the other day. <laughs> um, Teddy uh, thought it was hilarious, because you're spies. You've come to check out the nakedness of the land. That's really funny when you're six years old. The <laughs> nakedness of the land. We had to talk about what that meant. Um, yeah, he said, you're spies. You've come to check out the nakedness of the land, which, of course, is not true. He's, he knows who they are, um, and he's, he's kind of we don't, it's really unclear just what Joseph is doing. He's putting them to the test of sorts, okay? Um, okay, what happens next? They've, they've got um, grain, and they're going to go back, and what, what, on the way back, they... Yes, they have to bring back their father and their brother. Bring, yeah, bring back your, your youngest brother. Because they discover that the money that they had paid had been put back into their sacks, right? And so they go back, and, they, and he says, okay, I'm gonna, I'll trust you if you leave one of your brothers here now, Simeon, Go home and bring back Benjamin. They go home and, jo- and Jacob's like, Psh, leave Simeon. I'm not sending Benjamin. He's, he's the one I love, right? Um, but they, they sort of, they, they run out of food, and so they have to go back. And they say, we can't go back without Benjamin, of course, right? So Benjamin's got this prime place in the story so far. Um, really important, important role. Okay, so then what happens next? They go back with Benjamin, and they have a similar debacle, right? Joseph tricks them again. He sends them home, and what is it? It's a cup, right? There's a cup that he's put in Benjamin's pouch, and nobody knows it. So when Joseph sends his crew to track them down, he says, you stole from me. And they said, no, we, no, we didn't. Whichever one of us stole from you, you can take him. And, of course, those kinds of vows you shouldn't make. Don't do it. It's bad news. Um, they discover that is Benjamin. Joseph, of course, you know, master of the whole situation. Um, but this is terrible for the brothers. This is terrible. This is the worst thing imaginable because it's going to kill Jacob, right? It's going to kill Jacob. So what happens? Joseph is going to keep Benjamin, and he says, go and bring your father. What happens? I think it was Levi who said, um, take me in. Not Levi. Judah. Judah. Yes. Okay, so now this is, this is the story gets thick right now because we have um, a transition from, remember, Judah was not a great guy. No. No. He was really awful. But he seems to have had a change of heart and became this uh, leader among his brothers. Reuben, remember, Reuben was out of the picture because he had slept with his father's concubine or something like that. Just terrible, right? And then who was number two? Was it, was it uh, Levi? can't remember. In any case, the, it was, Judah was the fourth in line, and he was the only one left standing with any, any sort of responsibility. So he takes ownership of the situation, says, take me instead, okay? This becomes important because Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin, David of the tribe of Judah, okay? All right? Um, good. Now, there's another story that happens, and I, I thought about just reading this to you, but um, I'm just going to try and give you a synopsis of it. The, remember, remember how the book of Judges ends? What's the ending of the book of Judges? Do you remember? Yeah. 
In, the, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, okay? Now, there's this episode that happens in the last three chapters of Judges. It's not actually the last thing that happens in Judges, but it's placed at the end of the book. Um, it, perhaps for, for its relevance to the story of Samuel. But chapter 19 begins this way. In those days when there was no king in Israel, okay? So we got these bookends, beginning of chapter 19 to the end of Judges. Bear with me here, okay? So in those days there was no king and there was a man, a Levite, who had a concubine who was unfaithful to him, okay? Already the situation is a mess from the get-go, okay? Had a concubine who was unfaithful to him, and she uh, ran off to her father's house in Bethlehem. After a little while, he went to, f- to get her. And there's this strange story that happens, this strange sequence of um, parties that they have. The father welcomes him. He's so happy to see him. It's, it's like maybe he wants to butter him up a little bit so that he doesn't take his daughter away. Okay? So the Levite um, comes to get his concubine, and the father is showing the great hospitality to the Levite. And so finally the Levite says, okay, we've got to go now. I'm taking my concubine with me. And the father says, delay. Just wait a little bit. Just wait a little bit. Um, so finally he prevails, and he leaves. And it's late in the day, so they don't get very far. And they come to what, what is Jerusalem, but at the time it was occupied by Canaanites who hadn't been driven out of the land, the Jebusites, okay? And the, he, the Levite and his servant are talking about it, and they say, well, we shouldn't stay here because why would we stay among these foreigners? Let's go a little bit further. We're going to go to Gibeah of Benjamin, okay? So now we've got a town in the, in the land of Benjamin. That town is Saul's hometown, Gibeah. You see it on your map. Take a look. Take a look at the first map there. So Benjamin, you can see it. It's the orange, the little orange one just, just above the Dead Sea. And right near Jerusalem, you have Gibeah. Do you see that there? Okay, so they're going to stop in Gibeah. And they walk into Gibeah and nobody welcomes them. So they're going to just spend the night in the town square, which is fine by them. They've got food for their animals and um, food for themselves. But an old man comes along and he says, come, let me show you some hospitality. And they, they decline. They say, no, no, we're fine here. And he says, no, no, you don't, don't stay in the square tonight. Um, so they go to his house to, and receive his hospitality. And in the middle of the night, um, or while they're, while they're um, enjoying each other's company, the men of Gibeah come and do something terrible, right? You may re- this will sound familiar. Tell me where this is familiar from. They come and they say, send us out this guest of yours that we may have our way with him. What does that sound like to you? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Remember what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot is living there. The angels have just come to visit Abraham, and he sends them on their way. They go to Sodom and are welcomed by Lot, and then the men come knocking on the door at night. And remember what he says? Lot says, look, I'm going to send, you can have two of my daughters, right? Just not these men, which is a really, I mean, so repulsive, Tells you something about how important hospitality was for them, right? This is my guest, and I owe him protection. It seems even more protection than he owes his daughters. Um, but that, now, that was something that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Here it's happening in Israel, in Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin, in this town of Gibeah, okay? If, if, ever, if ever you needed evidence that every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, here it is. It's awful, okay? Um... The man, the old man who's showing hospitality says, no, no, here are some, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I think, you know, sometimes when you read this, this kind of stuff, you think to yourself, boy, they, they were just backwards people, right? The whole culture was backwards. 
I think that it, was, it would have been as repulsive to any pious listener then as it is to us now. It's supposed to be repugnant, okay? This is awful. This is terrible. Um, finally, they send out the concubine. Now, the story is terrible. And it's, I, you know, it's important that you know this because of the, the, the setup that it has for what comes in 1 Samuel. The night, the night comes to an end, and in the morning they find the concubine lying at the door. Um, and she's dead. Okay, so the men of the city have had her, their way with her, and she's died. So Levi takes her and returns to his home, and then he dismembers her, cuts her to pieces, and sends her throughout the land of Israel, 12 pieces, okay? Sends her throughout the land of Israel. Why does he do that? Why do you think he would do that? Yeah. To muster, to muster the people of Israel against this town in Benjamin, okay? You tracking with me so far? You with me on this story? Okay. So he does that, and um, they go to the town of Gibeah, and they say, uh, or they say to the Benjamite, Benjaminites, hand over these men who did this terrible thing, and they won't do it. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, takes the side of this, the, the horrible people in this town. So you, now you've got Benjamin, the entire tribe of Benjamin, against all the rest of the tribes of Israel. Things are devolving rapidly into civil war, okay? This is terrible. Um, so you've got some, in the order of tens of thousands of troops of the Benjaminites and the rest of the tribes of Israel, 400,000 men, okay? So 400,000 Israelites are coming against Benjamin. And they say, they inquire of the Lord. So they do this one pious thing as they come to exact vengeance. They say, who should go first? Which tribe should go first? Guess which tribe should go first? Do you know? Can you guess? Judah. Judah should go first. Okay, because Judah is the royal tribe. The promise given to, that, that Jacob gave when he died. The scepter will not depart from you. Okay? They go. They attack. And the Israelites lose 20,000 men, something like that. And then they attack again. They ask the Lord, should we attack again? The Lord said, yes. So they attack again, and they lose another 18,000 men. And now they're, gonna, they're wondering whether we should really be doing this. So they ask the Lord, and he says, yes, one more time. This time they set up an ambush, and they go in and they destroy everybody. They just destroy nearly the entire tribe of Benjamin. There are only 600 people left in the tribe of Benjamin. So just, that's really important to picture here. So when it says Saul was a son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, this you know, episode in Israel's history is in the background, right? Benjamin was nearly eradicated because of the wickedness that they, that they were perpetrating. Then there's this strange thing that happens. They, so they, they kind of like come to their senses and realize that there are only 600 Benjaminites left. They've nearly eradicated an entire tribe of God's people. What are we going to do? They need wives, but they'd sworn an oath. They said, none of us are going to give our daughters to the Benjaminites because they were such horrible people. What should we do? They say, well, who didn't come when we called to muster um, to go against Benjamin? Well, the people of the town of Jabesh-Gilead. So that's on your map as well. Take a look at the next map that you've got, the next big map. Um, there's a green line coming from the right and, and a purple line coming from the left, left that splits into three parts where Jabesh-Gilead is. That city also factors into our story today, if we ever get to our story today. But, that, uh, but Jabesh Gilead didn't come to fight against Benjamin when we called. And so they go. I mean, the, the, you know, it's like, can you, you know, if you need examples of overcorrection, here it is. We've nearly eradicated this tribe, and we need, we need wives. This city didn't show up. We're going to go and kill everybody in that city. So they kill everybody in that city, 
except for 400 virgins. And they bring those 400 virgins and there to be the wives of the Benjaminites. I mean, God's people are a mess, right? But 400 virgins is not enough, right? There's 600 men left in Benjamin. 400 is not enough. So they say to the men of Benjamin, look, there's going to be a festivity at Shiloh. And what you should do is when, they're, when the young ladies come out to dance, you should go and steal 200 of them, like seven brides for seven brothers, right? You should go and steal, two, go steal 200 of them. And uh, they do that. And, they, and then they say to the people at Shiloh, look, this is all copacetic because you didn't give them your daughters, and we need to keep this tribe safe. We need to preserve its future. Um, and then they carry on from there. So this is some, you know, some hundreds of years before our story in 1 Samuel. Okay, so this is in the background. We've got the tribe of Benjamin doing this terrible thing, the town of Gibeah being the source of this problem, the people of Jabesh-Gilead nearly getting uh, destroyed altogether, and just the wives, or the virgin daughters being left. Okay, you with me? Does this make sense? Did you know this story was in the Bible? Yeah, this is... This is uh, it's bad news. The, um, the, the, one of the reasons why this is so important is because you, you see this shift from, you know, like when Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur rains down from heaven on them, you're like, yeah, they, you know, they deserve that. They weren't God's people. They deserve that. But now it's God's people who, again, like have this perpetual problem of forgetting what's happened. It's like you say to yourself, remember what happened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah when they did that? And this is why Jesus says, you know, in the gospel, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than for you, right? Because you have God's promises, and you're rejecting them outright, okay? You've rejected me as your king, and now there was no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes, okay? This is in the background. Now we're going to turn to our story today. Um, You ready for it? Okay, here we go. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So here you, already you get a glimpse of Saul's character. What do we know about Saul so far? What do we know about him? kind of a person is he? Something special. He's tall, handsome. I mean, that's an interesting remark in, a, in, in this kind of a story. He's tall and handsome, ahead above everybody else. What about what he says here? Let's go home before, lest my father begin, stop to worry about the donkeys and begin to worry about us. Wouldn't you like it if your kids said things like that? <laughs> so, so conscientious about what, you know, you're, oh, dad's going to be worrying about me. I'm going to go, I'm going to go back and find him now, right? Um, he's very, con- he's conscientious, okay? Um, but, the, but he, the servant, this is verse 6 now, he said to him, said to Saul, behold, There is a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? 
The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And then there's this interesting parenthetical comment. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Any questions? There's a difference between a seer and a What would be the difference, Carol? Um, a seer, one, more than likely, is not a man of God, but it is one that tells the truth. Yeah, right? I, I, think that that, I think that that's probably true. I don't know whether um, separating it from... Whether there's any distinction between being a seer and being a man of God, you won't, you can't see things unless God is giving them to you, right? Maybe. Yeah, um, but he. So he, the writer here is telling us that um, it used to be that you were most concerned about finding out about the future, but now we have a prophet who is. What does a prophet do? What's a prophet do? Yeah, says what God says delivers God's words. It's not just, you know, a fortune teller, um, but is actually proactively delivering God's word. Um, and in fact, so take a look. At, that, well, that's exactly right. Yeah. So the office of, pro, the office of prophet um, is not reputable at, you know, at various, in most of Israel's history because the prophets are calling people to repentance. <laughs> They're saying, you need to stop doing what you're doing. And nobody likes that. This is why they killed the prophets, right? Um, take a look at this other third map I've got for you now, this little one. Um, you can see a couple of places on the map you recognize, Jerusalem, and there's Gibeah, and there's Bethel. And this red line indicates um, a circuit where Samuel judged. So he wasn't like roaming around the whole land of Israel, but he would Make, he would make stops at these places, and we're going to find out what he was doing. He was going up to um, a high place to preside over the sacrifices, okay? Um, so it was a strange institution. It's, it's, it's almost like, um, I mean, in the way they talk about it, look, I hear, that there's, I hear there's a man in this city who can tell us things. Let's go check him out. It's, they really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Everything's just guesswork. They're not sure about it. Um, and what's so striking about that is underneath the surface of all of this is God's hand doing things that are far beyond the scope of what they could have imagined, right? That Samuel, this, this regional prophet, you know, is actually going to be the one who anoints God's kings and um, the, one who, the one who announces judgment to the people of Israel, okay? Let's keep going. As they went up the hill... To the city, they met, a young, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So we just had this interesting factoid about what worship was like in the life of Israel. I don't, you know, when you hear high place, immediately you think this is not right. Something's not right here. Um, it's unclear. We're just, we're just not sure what exactly is going on. The high places were, you know, why would, why would a high place matter? What's, what's, the, what's the significance of a high place? 
So they look down on the people, right? And if you go up to the high place, you're closer to the heavens, right? Yeah. So they would often be worshiping in places that false gods had been worshipped, which is a risky thing because if you don't get rid of the, you know, the trappings of the false worship, you just sort of absorb it yourself. This is always the problem is when um, instead of eradicating the false gods, you just kind of baptize them and make them, make them part of your, your religion, okay? So they went up to the city, verse 14. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now that's interesting. Um, There's two reasons that God is giving Saul to the people. What are they? Two reasons. To fulfill their wish. Okay, that's true, yeah. He's doing it as a concession to them. But in in what Samuel, what God says to Samuel here, there are two reasons he gives for Saul. Well, that was that's right. Yeah, he's got, they've got enemies and he's going to lead them into battle, right? He will be their prince. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, okay? He will save them from their enemies. But there's another reason too. Restrain them from themselves, right? Yeah. Well, okay, so we have high hopes for Saul for a few more chapters um, that he will restrain God's people. Yeah, it's interesting that those two things go hand in hand, right? He will save them from their enemies and he will restrain them. Um, that's what a good prince does. But notice, of, of course, it's interesting. There's, there's, it seems like the language is a bit um, nuanced here. So he's not called a king yet. You, won't, you shall not anoint him to be king over my people. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He holds off on saying the word king until it actually happens. Because it's like, do I really, you know, do they really need to have a man to be their king? Okay. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, so now Saul wonders what's going on here. (laughs) As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? So now Saul is perplexed, right? This guy knows. He tells, he tells me everything I've ever done, right? And he's telling me that I'm going to go sit at his table um, at, this, at this festival. And so Saul answers, am I not a Benjaminite? Don't you know? <laughs> Don't you know who you're talking to? What kind of people you're talking about? From the least of the tribes of Israel. Not just least because it's the smallest one, but least because it's got this scourge in its history. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Now, tell me about Saul. What's, again, what's your impression of Saul at this point? Try and forget everything that comes later. Try, like, try and eradicate from your mind the picture of Saul about to throw a spear at David. What, tell me about Saul. Humble. humble. Yeah, incredibly humble. It, um, he's, he's just like, here you have the seer giving you this great honor, and he's you know, trying to make sure that it's 
that he actually knows what he's talking about because I don't deserve this, right? I'm from Benjamin. Um, good. Any questions at this point? You good still fo- so far? Let's keep going. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So he's giving, he's giving Saul all these indications that God is at work, right? So there's, something, there's something afoot that he has no idea about. And this leg, you know, the leg is, the, is a priestly portion, right? Um, so there's this incredible honor that's being bestowed on Saul. He's sitting with Samuel eating this priestly portion. And he has no idea why. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't know what's up. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread on, for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here for your, hear yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So this is the culmination of this entire sort of cryptic ceremony that Saul's been brought into. Verse 1, hear this and then we'll, then we'll talk for a bit. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And he gives him this sign. Let me read this and then we'll talk a little bit. When you depart from, the, from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Isn't that interesting? There's, I mean, this concern about sons has echoes also of the Jacob story in it too. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you'll accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so, so he says, this is going to be the sign, and then he like, tells him exactly what's going to happen moment to moment for the next you know, the next part of his journey. Very, very specific, and it happens, we'll see, just as he says. But there are some keys here. Back up to when he anoints him. Um, it's, it's, he doesn't even want the servant nearby when he does this, right? It's very subtle. Um, it's in the background. Um, and Saul gets the sense, of course, that this is kind of a secretive thing, right? He's not going to tell, he's, in fact, he's not going to tell anybody about what has happened. Um, You know the word anointing, of course, um, in Hebrew, 
is, has to do with the word Messiah, right? So the Messiah is the anointed one. In Greek, Christos, Christ, Christ that means anointed one. So um, this anointing, notice that there doesn't have to be anybody else there to observe it, right? He, Samuel pulls Saul aside and says, this is what we need. We need the word of the Lord, right? So, so Samuel pulls Saul aside and in delivering to him the word of the Lord, he makes him God's anointed one. Um, which, te- you know, tells us so much about how God works, right? It's not because, like, all kinds of people were there to witness you being baptized that you're a child of God, but it's because God's word was there and the Holy Spirit anointing you, right? Um, and it has no immediate apparent effects, right? Saul doesn't look any different than he did before. He's the same man until later the Spirit's going to come on him and he's going to become another man, right? Okay. Questions? Let's keep going. We've got to get to the end of, this, of chapter 11. We've got to get through chapter 11. Okay. Yes, please. I, I looked and I couldn't find anything. It's just like a prominent landscape feature. So, you know, everybody knows about the Okotabor, I guess. So, it's just like Rachel's tomb. You, you know, it's like um, Butterfield Road. Go down to Donata. Then that's where it's going to happen. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, here we go. Where was I? Verse. Oh, by the way, you need to pay attention to this. Um, verse 8. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay. That becomes really important later. Seven days you've got to wait, Saul. Seven days. Verse, uh, and, and what you need to wait for is for me, Samuel says, wait for me to come and offer the burnt sacrifices. Verse 9, when he had turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So that proverb becomes ironic later in Saul's life, right? This is what they used to say about this man. Is is Saul not also among the prophets? Um, And that becomes, you know, even more judgment against him. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him, and to his servant, where did you go? Now, I read some commentary here that's really, uh, um, I think I, I, bu- I buy it. I believe it. Um, you have in the story so far these exchanges of fathers and sons. Okay? So, Eli had wicked sons. He gets a new son, Samuel. Samuel had wicked sons. He gets a new son, Saul. So, now Saul's father is not Samuel, is not his, his original father, but Samuel. So we haven't heard anything about an uncle so far. Who is this guy, his uncle? The commentator said maybe that's, this is signifying the change in paternal authority in his life, right? This man is not his father anymore, but his uncle. I think it's an, I think it's an interesting take on it. it. It makes sense of the, the sort of the dramatic exchanges that are taking place, right? Um, the familial relationships that are broken, um, find substitutes in, in God's promises and in, his, and in the people that he's chosen to do his work. 
Okay, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So he's still very reticent about the whole thing. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So here we have this instance of Saul is doing, Saul is this clear choice for king and he's doing everything right. He's humble and he's tall. And then Saul reminds, Samuel reminds them, you've rejected God, right? You're God who saves you. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, which is a surprise to everyone. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So, I mean, it's like, it's almost, it's comical, right? How, how hesitant he is, how his humility is exaggerated. Um, he does not, <laughs> you, you kind of have this picture, you know, he's so tall, right? So he's like hiding behind the baggage and maybe his head is sticking up, they, they spot him over there. But then there's also this irony too, that they have to Samuel's just said, you've rejected your God. And they say, we can't find the man. Let's ask God where he is, right? So they've rejected God. And then and the, this irony is that they have, to, they have to resort to asking God to show them where the king is because they can't find him on their own, okay? Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So now we've got a king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. He held his peace. Okay, so this last note even more tells us about Saul's character, right? These men are despising him. They're threatening his, you know, the integrity of his kingship right from the beginning. He, held, he holds his peace. Um, it's also interesting that there's apparently not much for him to do as king. He just, he goes home. <laughs> He's just, we're going to find out even more just how, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't clear what the job consisted of, even though Samuel wrote, the, wrote it down in a book. Do you have any questions at this point? Kathy. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I want, I'm sure we see remnants of it here and there. In, in um, I'm just trying to think. I don't know that any part of the scriptures really details what the job of the king is. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it would be it'd be super interesting to see it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay, so. We have, to get to, we have to do chapter 11 because chapter 11 is where this backdrop 
the story I told you at the beginning about the people of Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead, where it all comes together in Saul's life, okay? So, yes? So Jabesh Gilead, what Yeah. Yeah, so Jabesh Gilead is in, what is it, the Transjordan, so it looks like it would be, it would be Gad, right? Um, it's, on the, it's on the river, and so it's a, it's a really um, strategic location. But um, I don't know that it has any significance besides that, besides its strategic value. Yeah, good question. Okay, here we go. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Uh, so again, on this map, you've got the, the people of Ammon in, this, in green over here. And you can see how they, they, they could press in from the east to the Jordan and oppress the people. They're besieging the city of Jabesh-Gilead. Okay? Um, and the people of Jabesh Gilead seem to be no better than they were before. We'll serve you. Look, we're just, we're going to fold. We'll be your, we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. Now, remember, uh, do you remember this, that um, Dagon, the god of the Philistines, what kind of a god is, is he? A serpentine god, a fishy serpentine god. When David kills Goliath, he's wearing scaly armor and chops off his head. Nahash, the name Nahash means serpent, Okay. Um, I don't think it's just coincidental. Um, it's, but it tells you, you know, how Saul is going to come now and do the work of just defeating the serpent, okay? Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite, who is an awful fellow, said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. It's hard to imagine how that would work, how that strategy would work. Just give us seven days to see if anybody will come and give us support, and then we'll give ourselves up to you. The only way that works is if Nahash is super confident, right? And he's just... You know, they're besieging the city, and this is, only, this is not going to get better for them. This is only going to get worse. There's no savior in Israel, right? There's nobody to come and save them. But verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, which is, I guess, what you do when you're the king. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told them the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. So, it's, so he's saving Jabesh, uh, the people who didn't reply, who didn't come when they were summoned before to, come, to go against the Benjaminites. He's saving them, sending this message by dismembering the oxen in the same way that the concubine was. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. 
When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came to the midst of the camp in the morning, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So Saul is humble, he holds his peace, and now he saves Israel. He does exactly what God gave him to the people to do. And he does it uh, in this, I mean, it's not just military victory, but incredible military leadership. The people acted as one man. That is no small feat, right? That is incredible, considering how every man did what was right in his own eyes, yeah? Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So those naysayers from earlier on, we need to put those people to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now he's not, he's not just a good military leader. He's not just a humble man, but he's directing the people to God's salvation. Everything looks great for Saul. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So it's, I mean, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you'd think that this is it, right? Things are great right now. This is what, this is what was meant to be, except, except for all of Samuel's... <laughs> Doom and gloom that he's talking about. You have any questions? Carol. Yeah, I'm going back to Jeff. Okay. Samuel is the end. You know, go down before me to Gilgal. About in seven days you'll wait and I'll come and see you. Yeah. Did all this other stuff go on within a week? Or, I mean, what's... It seems that way, right? So... Is this the seventh day of the end of... We're, we're with, it feels like we're within those seven days. And no, notice, because the people of Jabesh Gilead say, tomorrow you can, you can do, have your way with us, right? You can gouge out our eyes and we'll serve you tomorrow. Because they had said, give us seven days as well, right? So we got this period of seven days, and when the attack happens, it seems like it's on the seventh day. Is there any correlation for going back to creation? Um, I, I doubtless. I think that there is. Um, I'm not sure... You know, the, the number seven is a, is a number of fulfillment, right? Completion. Um, so things are really coming together. It's not the number of new creation, right? Um, we're expecting that, waiting for that. We'll have to see what happens next, whether we get there. Other questions? Holly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, eight becomes eight becomes important as a, as a resurrection day, particularly important as a resurrection day. Um, but seven, yeah, seven is a number of completion, of fulfillment. So God has done what he said he would do. Today the Lord has saved you. Yeah. Aaron. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, we've been prayer a lot, how you pray, and Yeah. 
I guess I'm just trying to think through, like, when you ask for things that God doesn't want you to have, and, and I'm thinking through, like, okay, it's not like we pray and ask for something, and if it's not what God wants, that we need to do it. us through that. But, I mean, I guess I'm kind of trying to think through, like, couldn't God have just given them a good thing? <laughs> So here's the thing. He, yeah, he wants to give them a good king. And he's going to give them a good king. He's promised it, but he's going to be the king himself. Um, and it's, there is some sense, like you said, Holly, in proving a point. I mean, it, people are tough to figure out and what exactly it takes to get people to come around is beyond me. Um, God does it in surprising ways. Um, so, you know, evidently, in order for his word to come to the nations for his, um, for his people to have any chance of repentance, it, it needed to happen this way. Yeah. Um, so it, so um, what would have happened if he gave them a good king, a good man as a king? They would have fallen in love. I mean, they do. They, fall, they think that they've got their salvation. Put not your trust in princes. I mean, it's not like um, they didn't know this was a bad thing to ask for. Samuel says it over and over and over again, right? Um, so they should have wondered to themselves, this, you know, this is not going to go, this is probably not going to go well for us. And that, I mean, that's a startling thing to, because we, we do so easily fall in love with the successes of life. You know, the, the apparent answers to the prayers of, of things that we think we need or things that we want. Um, and, you know, the, the trouble is dissatisfaction with what God has given to us and also losing sight of the future promise that he's, God in store for us. So no earthly kingdom is ever going to be uh, able to give us peace. No earthly kingdom is ever going to succeed. No earthly king is ever going to be immune from having his own way. And I mean, it, David is the, the, the best you can get. And he is terrible. <laughs> um, it, it, and that, I mean, so in some sense, it's like, it's again, it's um, some lessons you have to learn. You have to just, you have to keep rehearsing them over and over and over again, and that's part of being formed and shaped. And again, these stories are, you know, we get to see this fascinating detail in how God is working out on this, this really micro level in order to accomplish these bigger things. And it feels like the bigger thing he's accomplishing here is putting a king over the people of Israel, but it's not, that's not even the biggest scope that he's after, right? Because what's the scope? It's the scope that his people would be a light to the nations, that the world would hear and, and revere his name and hold him to be God and worship him and that all nations would come and worship in his temple, right? So even if, I mean, it's like they think that God's going to be fulfilling his word if he just makes them happy in the land of Israel. That's not what, he's never been just after that, right? Back to Abraham. Why am I choosing you? Why are you going to, why, why is your seed going to number more than the stars in the sky? So that all nations of the earth will be blessed for you, through you. It's not, he's not just after preserving this land, um, He's after the world. Aaron. So thinking about how God is from our prayer. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we don't have a prophet who's telling us that's actually a really bad idea to ask for that. And like <laughs> God is going to do all these terrible things if you ask for that. Um, and in some ways, like, people are doing what's right in their own eyes. Everything's a mess. Maybe it makes sense to have a king. Do you know what I mean? So... So in, in terms of like how this informs 
So that's a real possibility. Let's just so let's play that on the table. It's a real possibility that you get what you want and it hurts you. Apparently hurts you. Seems to hurt you. Of course, nothing in the end is going to hurt you because it's all working towards your eternal good. But um, although we don't have a prophet telling us what's good and bad for us, God's word is pretty clear. You know, just take it. Take the Ten Commandments. You know, what are the things that you should seek after in this life? What pleases the Lord? Um, measure all your prayers by that standard. Um, and then you can pray confidently, right? Um, it it, it ch- also changes the prayers that you're not sure about so that you say, like Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Yeah. If it, you know, I think it would be best if this cup was passed from me, but what would be the consequence of that? Lose the world, right? Um, and so it's a, it's a pious prayer because he says, not my will, but yours. Um, that That should give you... I think confidence to pray without sort of um, being afraid that you're going to get conquered by the Ammonites. I don't think you have to. Jesus prayed for something that he did. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and, and faith is the key there, right? Um, you can't pray that prayer. I mean, the people of Israel were unfaithful. So it's a, mar- it's a marvel that God heard their prayers at all, right? He, their cry came to him. Um, and it's because, and, it, and this, is, this is so crucial because it's, it's not for their sake, it's for his name's sake, right? So he's, he's after the people of Israel, even though they're faithless, he's after them, giving them things, answering their prayers, um, setting them straight so that his name can be held in righteousness among, uh, in, throughout the world. So, so long story short, you know, you should pray with confidence and you should be, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be afraid that like God's going to trick you. He's not, I mean, his, his heart is an open book to you. This is the scriptures. His heart is an open book. Just like his heart was an open book to the people of Israel. Why didn't they hear Samuel? It's because they were faithless. They were unwilling to repent. So start everything with repentance. Turn, you say, I, on my own, I want to do things my own way, and I, I can see how that goes. This is why these stories are so helpful, right? Do you need any more evidence of what a bad idea it is to follow your own wishes in life? I mean, just... Think about that. <laughs> and, then, and then in view of repentance, which repentance is not just turning away from your own desires, but trusting in God's mercy. Um, you pray faithful prayers then. Carol. What did you eat from Ezekiel this morning? Uh, that's a good question. Why did I read from Ezekiel? In chapel, I, I read from Ezekiel 36, which is this passage about new hearts. So you've been exiled in the land, a, land, a foreign land, and, and it's, it's actually because of this theme of um, God saving his people because of, for his name's sake. Here, let me just gloss it for you real quickly. This is, this is I've been thinking about this passage a lot. This is why, because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, listen to what he says. He says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. So if, you've, so if you've got God's name on you, you can be confident that God is going to act for, act in and through you and for your good because his name depends on your eternal salvation, right? Um, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So why, how did we get here in exile? 
How did we get here in this world where we're not at home? It's because we've profaned his name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And this is so important because vindication of his name by all measures that we can imagine involves our eradication, right? How can God's name be kept holy among us? Well, if we stop <laughs> disgracing his name, which is, the, you know, that, I mean, that sounds like the end of the story for us, but this is what he says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So for the people of Israel, this was coming out of exile and back into the land of Israel. And if only they could have kept their eyes on the promised land that was yet to come, it would have it would have gone better for them. And the same thing is for us, right? This land that we're in right now, this world is not our home. We're exiles. And he's going to gather us and bring us into our own land. And then this uh, image is just so potent. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And this has to do again with that, you know, this this you know, potential fear that God's going to take my prayers and give me what I want and I'm going to suffer for it, right? He's, he wants to free you of your idols and he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Um, he doesn't want to just hand you over to them so that you, you, know, you finally have your way. Um, he wants to save you from them and he's going to. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Which is the answer to the righteous prayer of every Christian who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, right? We don't love his law the way we should. We follow the desires of our hearts. And here he is promising that there's going to come a day when you're going to love what he loves. That is, uh, I mean, that is, when, especially when you realize the cost of following your own loves, the cost of pursuing your own desires, to be free of that one day, that is the joy. That is, I mean, that is the incredible joy of heaven. Um, and then he goes on and gives, paints this picture. Um, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations." So you, maybe, maybe the, a picture of fruitfulness, agricultural fruitfulness, does something for you. I could, it puts a really nice picture in my mind. It's like the picture of, in, in Psalm 1, the man who uh, is planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season, right? Um, it's so hard to be fruitful. And this world that we live in is stricken with famine. Um, famine because we don't bear fruit. The world does not bear fruit. It's not fruitful the way God designed it to be. Um, most, you know, most importantly in terms of love, um, we don't bear the fruit of love. But that is coming. That day is coming. Thanks for, thanks for asking that question. <laughs> Sorry to get on my hobby horse there. But that, I mean, it's, if you can hold that picture in your mind, if you can hold that promise in your mind, it puts... It, it, it puts things in perspective. And then there's this bit, I should just say, there's this bit afterwards that I'm, I've really, I've thought a lot about how this is, um, how I don't like getting to this next part. Verse 30, I will, or verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways. So now you're in the land. Have I told you about this? Did I tell you about this? You'll, you're in the land, it's a fruitful land, and it's the land that God has promised to you, and you'll be his people, and he will be your God. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Why is that? How can that possibly be a good thing? 
Um, how can that possibly be a good thing? What do you think? Yeah. Why? But now, why is seeing your sin a good thing? To repent. To repent. Good. Create a new heart within me. Right. Because I'm. What good is a new heart if I don't think I need one? Right, Aaron. That seems so hopeful to me because I think of myself in like seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. <laughs> but everything was really easy. Yeah. Like a really good girl. And I thought I was pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and coming past that and do that and realizing just like my own maturity and selfishness and like seeing my daily 15 minute need to repent. It's like, oh, it's so great. Yeah, it is. That's right. And it's not freeing. It's not like, um, it's not just, you know, having low self-esteem is a really good thing for you. That's not, that's not what this is about. It's, what's good for you is being hopeless about yourself so that you, you cling to God's mercy. I mean, God's mercy only becomes richer and richer and more beautiful the more you realize what a miserable person you are, right? And so remembering your iniquities and loathing yourself on account of them is uh, freeing because then you just hide, you hide yourself in the wings of God's mercy, right? Um, that's, you know, that's what this is all about, by the way. I mean, that's, that's the main thing we've got going. Um, and it's such a good thing. This, yeah. I just want to say that even though the people asked for something that they should not have asked for a king, God still was good to them. And, and he put his spirit on Sam also. Yeah. And, um, Samuel said that this is the man God chose for you. Yeah. So as long as Samuel and Saul uh, did what God wanted them to do, them to do, them to do um, things went well. That's right. Yeah. In spite of the fact we ask, you know, sometimes we get, but God can work through them. Yeah. And as long as until Samuel, <laughs> until Saul <laughs> went, went another pit. That's right. Pit. Yeah. Yeah. But he did save the people. Yeah. That's right. Yep. It, it, God reigns on, reigns on, sends his reign on the just and the unjust. And that, so like, I mean, the first article of the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's, a, that's an article of creed that is true of, of everybody. God has given me everything, right? And he defends and protects me from all danger. This is what, this is the kind of God you have, whether you think so or not, whether you love him or not. He's God, kind of God who gives daily. Yeah, good. Okay, we should go. Oh, uh, one question. So next week is, next Friday, there's a, not an institute day, maybe an institute day, a day when there's no school. How many of you will bring children next week to child care? Okay. Maybe half of them? Okay. Which half? No, I'm just uh, Okay, good. That's just helpful because Val wants to, Val, Val would like to know. Okay. Please come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.